This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Having these promises, let us draw near to the throne of grace with true hearts, in full assurance of faith. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, unto whom all power, glory, and dominion belongeth, we come into thy presence rejoicing that as we face a world of men dedicated to their own ways, it is thy way that shall prevail, thy kingdom that shall triumph, and thy will that shall be done. Strengthen us then by thy word and by thy spirit that we may go forth in thy name to conquer, to bring all things into captivity to Jesus Christ our Lord, that we might know that we have been called to victory. Bless us, therefore, in thy service. Grant us thy peace and give us always joy in thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture this morning is Matthew 23:13. Our subject, the purpose of authority. Matthew 23:13 is the first verse in a long passage going on to the end of the chapter in which woes and maledictions, curses are pronounced upon religious leaders and all who follow them into a way that is not of God. Matthew 23:13, the purpose of authority. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. The symbolism of keys as representing authority is an ancient one and quite a natural one. Keys, after all, do unlock wealth. They do unlock knowledge, property, and a great deal more. Wherever there is something of importance, a treasure, there are keys to protect it. The symbol of the key is used in many, many ways. We speak of a key man the important one, a key board controlling a typewriter or a computer. We speak of a keystone in the arch, the last stone that is set that binds all things together. We speak of a keynote in music and a keynote speaker at political conventions. We have, of course, the familiar symbol of the Phi Beta Kappa key, and much, much more. Our Lord uses this symbol 
when he speaks of the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16, verse 19. In this passage, Matthew 23, 13, he refers to the keys without using the word. The image here is of an irresponsible key holder who locks people out by misusing authority. The purpose of keys is to unlock doors. But false authorities use their keys not to lead people into knowledge or wealth or whatever it is they are custodians of, but to bar them. One scholar, Sherman E. Johnson, has said concerning Matthew 23:13 that it tells us that these False authorities have taken away the key of knowledge. They have made the law of God difficult and abstruse, and they have formed exclusive brotherhoods of experts to lock out all except themselves. Now, some time ago, we dealt with the distinction between elitism and hierarchy. And we saw that elitism means something humanistic, an exclusive group of men who are self-styled leaders, self-appointed experts, self-appointed philosopher kings. The classic document of elitism is Plato's Republic. According to Plato's Republic, most men are to be in a position of slaves, to be manipulated without knowing that they are manipulated, while the philosopher kings who are exempt from the rules they set for all others govern and manipulate the great masses of people. This, of course, is the political reality of the modern world. In varying degrees, every modern state, because it has departed from Christianity, is elitist in principle. Hierarchy means literally sacred rule, rule according to God's law. Now, there's no question that some that have been religious or Christian hierarchies have abused the office. And there is no question also that the word has fallen into disrepute as a result of a misuse by persons and by enemies of the concept of hierarchy. All the same, the distinction is an important and an essential one between elitism and hierarchism. Our Lord's comment here is that keys which are created to unlock doors and open up treasures are being misused. After all, if you don't have keys, the thing to do is to bury whatever you have or to seal it over to make it permanently impenetrable. The purpose of keys is to protect and to unlock. 
the purpose of the keys of the kingdom is to unlock the doors of knowledge to, of membership in and service in and under God and his kingdom. God's kingdom is his law and his government. We are emphatically told both in the Old and the New Testaments that the people of God are called to be a royal priesthood. That is, people with authority in the world. Now the kingdom keys are given to the church and are thus keys to the knowledge of God's law and God's calling so that all may become a royal priesthood. This is the whole point of the keys of the kingdom. Our calling is to be under authority, but also to exercise authority and government each in our appointed sphere. And the whole point of having the keys of the kingdom, of being an authority in the church of Christ, of being a teacher, of expounding the word of God, is to enable others to grow in authority, not to lock off knowledge and authority and the ability to govern from people. Our calling, let me repeat, is to be under authority and also to exercise authority and government. Now, more than once, we have dealt with the meaning of the word government, and it is important, again, to review it briefly in this context. It is so important a subject. You're going to hear about it over the years many more times. In our day, the word government has been dangerously misappropriated and wrongly defined. When we say government, we think of Sacramento or of Washington, D.C. or London or Moscow or some other statist center. Such a use of the word government is totalitarian. It absorbs the totality of government into the state. But historically in Christian thought, the basic government is the self-government of the Christian man. This is the essential government together with a family. The family is a government, an important, a key government. Then... Another government is the school, a training place where people can learn and grow in their self-government. The church is a government. Our vocation governs us and is a government. The society in which we live is a government. And finally, the state is civil government. Of course, the many institutions that are created by Christians and others, tithe agencies, for example, also govern. 
And in a Christian culture, most government is outside the state, which has only a limited amount of it. Now, this is important. Godly, hierarchical authority and government work to bring others into their rightful and God-ordained authority and government. Whereas, on the other hand, elitism works to exclude people from authority and government. It limits it to a small segment. One professor recently gave a speech, the gist of which was that the day of the philosopher kings has arrived. It should be government by experts. After all, we had this introduced into politics via Daniel Bell when some years ago President John F. Kennedy said that the day of moral questions had ended. We had reached a technological era in which all the questions were simple problems for experts to expedite. The implication of that was that really the voting process and the judgment by individuals was obsolete. Experts now should dominate the human scene. The purpose of elitism is to exclude people from their authority from their self-government. Whereas the true purpose of hierarchism, sacred rule, rule under God in terms of his law word, is to enable people to grow in their authority. Our Lord attacked and condemned all who used authority to shut the doors of knowledge and to trivialize God's law. For example, as an instance of the trivialization of God's law, and one could spend several hours just skimming the surface of what existed in our Lord's day. One of the laws set forth by the Pharisees was that it was unlawful to kill a flea or fleas on the Sabbath because it meant taking life on the Lord's day. Now God's law concerning the Sabbath is very simple. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Was a man more holy getting flea bites all day long on the Sabbath instead of killing the fleas? Another law said it was unlawful to eat eggs laid on the Sabbath unless it was laid not by a laying hand but one that was being fattened for the table. Again, what relationship is there between this and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Now, as I indicated, the Pharisees had a library full of regulations like this concerning the Sabbath. Endless regulations. But the church has been very definitely given to the same kind of thing. To give one illustration, during the Middle Ages and in early Protestantism in Puritan New England, the belief prevailed that a child was born on the same day it was conceived. So it was conceived on a Monday, it was born on a Monday. Well, if it was born on Sunday, it meant that the child had been conceived on Sunday, and it meant that the couple, the parents, had labored on the Sabbath. <laughs> they, therefore, had to do penance. In fact, one Puritan pastor in New England was quite a bear on the subject and made several couples make public confession of sin, although they kept protesting that they, privately that they had not broken the Sabbath. And then, lo and behold, his wife gave birth to twins on the Sabbath. <laughs> he had to make a public apology, but I suspect he didn't change his mind about what constituted Sabbath-breaking. Now, this is what our Lord had reference to. It was trivializing the Sabbath. They were not using the keys properly. They were barring people from the true knowledge of God with their trivialization. We have many such forms today, so we don't have to look back on what prevailed once before. Consider some of the pronouncements on warfare and on nuclear weapons by Protestant and Catholic leaders. Or consider the fact of symbolic and speculative theology that go to the Bible and find things there that no man with any common sense reading the same passage a hundred times could ever see there. What is that but elitism? They have some kind of special knowledge which you and I, looking at the Word of God, cannot see there. And our Lord says concerning all such elitists, He shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. As I said earlier, this sentence is the beginning of a long malediction and curse pronounced concerning all blind guides. Our Lord describes all elitists as blind, because they do not trust in God's wisdom, they've got to import their own into the house of God and proclaim it as the wisdom of God. There is a tremendous arrogance there. 
They are blind guides. And our Lord says a great deal more about them. They are fools. They are hypocrites. They are thieves who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Our Lord does not like elitists. He does not like people who feel they have a special pipeline into the truth of God that nobody else can see, which really isn't there. Moreover, in verses 36 through 39 of this chapter, he pronounces a judgment upon all who follow them. So to follow these blind guides is also to fall under God's malediction. The purpose of keys is to unlock doors. The keys of God's kingdom must be used to unlock the doors of knowledge, to unlock the doors of vocation, so men can, in terms of the word of God, understand better their calling and their place in God's scheme of things. The purpose of the keys is to enable us better to serve God, to make us a royal priesthood, priests, kings, and prophets, unto God our Father in Jesus Christ. The purpose of authority, our Lord makes clear, is to develop our own authority and ability to govern under God. Thus, wherever authority does nothing but exalt itself, maintain a position of power, and bar other people from growing in their ability to govern themselves and to function in their appointed sphere, you have elitism. It is elitism when it calls itself Christian as well as when it calls itself humanism. It is elitism because it takes away government and knowledge and authority from others. It limits it to a self-appointed group. Thus, our Lord's point is, the question is not merely, how do we govern those under our authority? Well, that is a, le a legitimate question. How do we govern those under our authority? Do we govern them in terms of a godly, a biblical standard? But closely aligned to that must always be the question. Having governed those under our authority, How do they now govern themselves? Have they learned to exercise 
proper authority and proper ju- uh, government, each in their own jurisdiction, each in their own sphere. This is the key. If they are forever cripples, forever dependent, we are blind guides and elitists. Something is very wrong with us, for example, if we have to go on supporting and taking care of our children and telling them how to wipe their noses all the days of their life. It means we have failed as parents. It doesn't mean there's a special closeness, only a very wrong and evil closeness. Mutual assistance between parents and children is one thing. A continuing dependence is something radically different. Parents are exercising an elitist, an ungodly authority whenever and wherever they create a dependence a continuing dependence. Something is wrong also in a church. If church members are kept in such close subjection that they dare not grow on their own, there are churches, in fact, there are denominations where the members never dare express an opinion about doctrine or about scripture for the simple reason that they are afraid to open their mouths. They are not the elite, the experts. You do not have life in a church like that. You have a graveyard situation. It is the death of growth, the death of authority, the death of self-government. Too many churches have been that way over the generations. One of the very great churchmen of the last century was William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. His vision was a magnificent one. It's a pity it was never carried out. He set it forth in a number of things, but in particular in a book which was a takeoff on Stanley's book when he went to Africa and located Livingston. Stanley's book was titled In Darkest Africa. And Booth titled his book In Darkest England and the Way Out. And it was a plan to take the people who were derelicts, human derelicts, on the street. To create strong Christians out of them. To give them job training. And to make them self-governing and competent peoples. Booth, 
in the process of thinking through these things, said the problem with the church was that there were too many mummy Christians around. A mummy is something that's been mummified. And he said all too many churches believe in getting somebody in and mummifying him so that he sits in the pew and he's good for nothing else. He never functions on his own. He's incompetent of going out and commanding any area of life where he is involved in the name of Christ. He is a mummy Christian. He has one duty, to be mummified and to sit still. Well, that kind of blindness is very much with us, not only in the churches but outside of the churches. Some teachers want mummy students. They want them mummified. Most politicians want a mummified population. Incapable, you know, of doing anything on their own, of simply surrendering everything to the political experts who will then function as the elite. A church with mummy Christians is a dead church, and its leaders are Pharisees who shut up the kingdom of God against men. Our Lord says of them, they neither go in nor do they allow others to enter in. They are elitists, not Christians. Let us pray. Glory be to thee, O God, who through Jesus Christ has opened up unto us the kingdom of heaven. We thank thee, O Lord, that thou hast called us to enter therein, to know thy kingdom, law, and government, to know our place therein, and to go forth with authority and power, each to govern in our appointed sphere. Strengthen us, O Lord, in our self-government under Christ. Make us mindful, O Lord, that we are a royal priesthood, called to be prophets, to proclaim the word of God and to apply it to our appointed sphere. Give us grace, therefore, to grow. Freedom to serve Thee and joy in Thy service. In Jesus' name, Amen. We have one announcement today. Our prayer meeting will be held here Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. Well, it's a theological explanation of totalitarianism, isn't it? 
Very good point, Otto. It is indeed a theological explanation of totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is simply Plato's dream applied to our time. It is elitism. It is a rejection of the idea that the common man is capable of anything. It is ironic that our times have been proclaimed to be the century of the common man, and he's never been put down more thoroughly or executed in greater numbers. If this is the century of the common man, <laughs> let's uh, hope we're, we never see the millennium of the common man that they're promising us. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Um, we know that pure Marxism could never happen because it, it comes to power, but then supposedly in the pure form is supposed to the power, the government is supposed to fade away. Is that right? And the man is going to be so good that he'll everything's going to be fine. It'll be utopia. Now, where did, why do they? Is that is that just to fool us? It uh, involves a kind of uh, half-unconscious self-deception. It is interesting that Dennis Peacock, who was in Central Europe this year, early this year, was told by some people there that... Marxism only existed in the Western democracies. And they said the world is either pre-Marxist or post-Marxist. That there is no discussion of Marxism in those communist countries. It was simply an excuse for totalitarian power over people. Elitism. So... On the rare occasion, for example, from other sources, we know that some young student, an eager beaver, reads Marx, say, at a Moscow university, and thinks this is wonderful. He is treated as an idiot. They're not happy with him. They're not interested in the subject. They pay lip service to Marxism. They use it as a kind of coverall term for their urge to total power. So the Marxist dream is nothing. Yes? Since the Catholic Church was authoritarian through the centuries, and now the... Uh, authority of the church seems to be falling apart. How does that strike you? The question is, since the Catholic Church was authoritarian through the centuries, and now that authority is falling apart, how does it strike me? Well, first of all, there was a drive in the church through the centuries for uh, 
a kind of totalitarian power. However, it was never really realized. During much of its history, for example, uh, under the Ottos, the Holy Roman Emperors, the church was controlled, the popes named by the emperors. Then, subsequently, briefly, the church gained some independence, but again, uh, control was exerted from the outside. And it reached the point where the College of Cardinals was actually treated like a band of uh, prisoners and compelled to name the Pope that the monarch who was controlling them or the emperor chose. And the church was systematically corrupted because Corruption was preferable to a reforming church. This led to the Reformation, but the Reformation in part has also been controlled by various states, Lutheranism, by Prussian absolutism, the Church of England, by Henry VIII and the uh, Stuart monarchs, and so on. And, of course, we have a similar thing today. Well, within the Catholic Church, you have it, uh, two things that have taken place. The low point in the Church's history in the modern age was reached just prior to Napoleon. The papacy was the subject virtually of the Austrian monarchs who were the Holy Roman Emperors. And its power receded because various forms of Gallicanism prevailed. The Catholic power outside of the Papal States was in Spain, in France, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and in some of the German states. In each of these places, the monarch controlled the church. I believe the uh, pope who was in power when Napoleon took over had to be crowned with a papal tiara. He'd become a virtual non-entity. The destruction of the Holy Roman Empire by Napoleon freed the church and they reverted to the kind of uh, dream exemplified in the medieval era by Unum Sanctum, claim to vast powers over both church and state. When Unum Sanctum was proclaimed, it was not an expression of a reality, but of the dream of a particular pope who himself had very little power. So you had a steady progression of a revival of that kind of thinking to Vatican I and the proclamation of papal infallibility. However, the rebellion within the church culminated in Vatican II. 
And a great deal was unleashed as a result of the controls being dissipated, both good and bad. The most uh, flagrant and rampant modernism, as well as the revival of some old-fashioned Catholicism and some evangelicalism. Now it's difficult to know what the outcome is going to be. It could be that some of the problems will create a reawakening of lay Catholic faith. It is interesting that very often in the Middle Ages uh, the revival of the church came through lay sources. Others, including a very prominent Catholic layman and a very dedicated old-fashioned one, believe the church is going to split. It's hard to know what is going to happen. But it is a long, complicated, and tangled history of control from the outside, attempting to suppress Christianity, Catholic and Protestantism, from having the freedom to uh, develop the implications of the faith for society. Yes? It seems to me like there's an awful lot of parallels between uh, 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 the Roman Catholic and many of the, of the pietist uh, Protestant sects. And what's, one of the problems they seem to have is this, is this schizophrenia that, you talk, that you've talked about so often. And, and what that really does, I think, is, is it, it, it pushes the church, whether Roman Catholic or Protestant or otherwise, I think it pushes the church into a corner of irrelevancy. And that's what brings rise to the, to the lay Catholic theologian that you talk about, to the lay uh, Christian scholar and what have you, because they recognize the fact that within the mainstream of orthodoxy, as it's currently defined, that there aren't any answers there, and so and and since the, the seminaries are still dominated by that lay orthodoxy, quote unquote, uh, the layman is forced if he really wants to get some answers. The layman is forced to do his own study, and I and I think that uh, uh, there the, the many parallels between the the uh, some sects of Roman Catholicism and some sects of Protestantism. Uh, I think that's just declining into a, into a state of irrelevancy, like modernism is, is becoming extreme, extremely irrelevant. And that's not where the growth is. That's not where the power is. The power is in, in a real orthodoxy. Yes. Well, when we see the Enlightenment, which ended the Reformation and Counter-Reformation era, what we have to recognize is that it was preceded by uh, tendencies that led to pietism so that men abandoned the po uh, problems of the world for uh, devotional exercises. In uh, the Puritan circles in England, and they were controlling the country, they went into Neoplatonism and lost interest in power and authority, which they had and could have exercised. Then you've had other things, for example... Uh, we know it today as rapture fever. At a key point, when Europe was 
going into revolution, the French Revolution and the era of revolutions, one of the greatest of Protestant scholars, a Lutheran, Bengel, B-E-N-G-E-L, brilliant uh, Old Testament scholar, uh, I believe it was Old Testament, uh, became deeply involved in predicting the date of Christ's return, and he set 1828 as the date. Well, he neutralized a generation of Christians who were looking forward to 1828, and they wouldn't have to worry about uh, the French Revolution and Napoleon and uh, a variety of other problems. It was deadly. Yes. Well, who translated Kibari's uh, uh, defense of the Pope uh, from the Latin to English? Because Kribari, what well, it was Kribari, wasn't it, that, that uh, went after the whole... Um, uh, he tried to prove that the Pope wasn't Antichrist and all those kinds of things, and in so doing uh, gave birth to an early form of, of the rapture fever idea that the millennium was still yet a long ways off, etc. And then who was it that translated that, that treatise, his tract or his book or whatever it was, into the other languages? I think I think there's a, there's a connection there somewhere. Yes, I've forgotten. It's years ago since I've looked at that. Well, our time is just about up. And uh, we could go on at length on this subject. But it, the Christian failure has been responsible for the freedom with which humanism has been able to operate. Now we're seeing very definitely a turnaround, a return to responsibility. Let us conclude now with prayer. Bless us, our Father, in thy service. Make us strong in the authority of thy word and in self-government, that in Christ Jesus we may be more than conquerors. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.